Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, as we uh, come today to wrap up uh, our journey through this book, through this letter that Paul wrote to the uh, somewhat troubled church in Corinth. We've, as we've gone through, we've seen him address all sorts of circumstances and situations from, uh, from uh, choosing up sides in terms of who your leader is and, and who you uh, want to be identified with, to sexual immorality, to uh, questions about the resurrection and the nature of the gospel. Paul has uh, sought to minister to this church, to, to connect with them, to help them to become who God has called them to be, to help them to become the, the, the people that uh, God has designed them to be, to move from uh, a status of, of lostness, a status of selfishness, a status of sensualness, to a status of sacrifice and unity and connectedness with each other. And, and we have this book, we have this letter, because these are common problems that have faced the church from the very beginning. They're problems that we ourselves face uh, in many ways, things that we, we struggle with, things that we, we uh, have to deal with. And as we come to chapter 16, as he's wrapping up here, he's going to basically just kind of um, throw in everything that's kind of left, okay? Uh, he's, he's addressed many of their questions. He's got one more question he's going to address here uh, in chapter 16, but he's addressed many of their questions. He's addressed many of the issues, and, and now he just kind of wants to fill them in, okay? This is what I'm doing. This is what's going on. This is what I expect of you. And, and it really is a, a, a question of ministry and action. All the things that Paul has now said, all the instructions he's given, all the advice he's given, all the corrections he's offered, is now coming to, uh, has now been completed, and he wants them to see how that might play out in terms of practical, everyday experience. Now, this is Paul's normal pattern with his letters. He'll, he'll spend the first part of his letters uh, talking about theology, consequences, uh, the philosophy, the the, the worldview that's behind some of the truths that he wants them to espouse, and then he'll spend the last part of his letter doing practical application. This is what this looks like. This is how that plays out. This is how everything I've said comes together in your life. And while the section for that is not as lengthy here in Corinth as it is in, in other letters that we have from him, it is nonetheless important. And he has three things that he wants to leave the church with. Three things that he wants to leave us with. And we find the first here in verses 1 through 4. He says, Now about the collection for the saints, do the same thing as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those uh, who you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is suitable for me to go as well, then they will travel with me. The first thing that Paul wants the church to understand is, is the importance of giving in terms of our survival. Giving helps us as a church survive. The offering that he's talking about here, the, the, the gift that he's talking about here is for the, the church in Jerusalem. At this point, uh, we're some 
uh, 20 years or so into the presence of the church there in Jerusalem. It is the, the mother church. It's where it all started. Um, and things are rough. Things are rough for the believers there. Things are rough because um, to be a Christian in this environment, now that we've had the, uh, we've likely had the, the, um, uh, the Jerusalem Council and all that, to be a Christian is to be separated from Judaism. To be separated from Judaism in the hub of Judaism is to what? Is to not really have any means for livelihood. To be a Christian here is to basically give up your livelihood. To, to, to go out on your own because uh, family members, uh, people who used to uh, often come to your shops or to your, your, your workplace and so forth to support you, to buy from you, they're no longer doing business with you. They're no longer interacting with you. You've been ostracized. You've been pushed to the side. You have been um, um, identified as a persona non grata. You are a person no more in the mindsets of everyone. And so without that sort of income, without that sort of support, without that, that family connection, the church has really begun to suffer, not just from the persecution as we commonly think of it, the beheading of James and so forth that we, we saw in Acts already, the stoning of Stephen, but just the day-to-day -day grind, getting through, dealing with, Things don't often make sense. And here in our country where we are so, so very blessed in so many ways, and we have the freedoms that we have, we, we can meet here openly. We can advertise it on the street as people drive by that we're meeting. We can put it on the Internet and let everybody know, this is when you come meet with us. We don't have persecution of the sort that um, we've seen in the book of Acts, we don't even see the ostracism that um, the church there in Jerusalem was experiencing, but we do still have difficulties. We still have hardships. We still have those times when we need the support and help of others. Giving is one of the fundamental ways that the church can help other believers. We give to what? To support others. We're going to show a video here in just a little bit about uh, Operation Christmas Child. We have the, the packing party coming up here uh, once again this weekend. Why do we give to those things? Do we just give because... We like to see little children with their smiling faces get their, their presents and open them. Does it make us feel good? Um, that's probably part of it. But it ought to be an outgrowth of who we are as believers supporting the work of Christ around the world. I'm very pleased to, to, to see that uh, our giving to our, our state missions offering is well beyond our goal what we set in that particular ministry to, to reach out to communities and individuals here in the state of Texas. Thank you for giving to that. Thank you for your regular giving here. Uh, as you probably picked up, I've been here since 2019. 
I don't want to do the math because I'm not good at math, even though it's like three or four and it's not a huge number or anything. It's still beyond my capabilities. I'm just saying. And probably in the, the three or four years that I've been here, I've probably preached a sermon on giving once, twice. It's not something I do. Why? Well, I generally don't preach on giving for, for a couple reasons. Number one, it generally hits the wrong targets. When you preach on giving, it generally hits the people who are already giving and they feel guilty that they're not giving enough and then they want to give more and, and that sort of thing. And the people that aren't giving, they're like, oh, the preacher just preaching on giving again. So it really doesn't accomplish its goal in my experience. But secondly, I, I don't preach on giving because I believe as we grow in our discipleship, as we grow in our understanding of God, as we grow in the in our wonder and awe of who he is and what he does and what he's called us to as believers, we will come to realize that giving is a fundamental part of that. I let the Holy Spirit speak on that issue. But don't mistake my lack of speaking on it to, to mean or to suggest that giving isn't important. It is. It's a vital part of our survival as a church. We can't do the things we do. We can't minister to the community we've been called to minister to if we don't have regular giving going on. We can't keep our doors open. We can't keep the AC on. We can't keep the, the, the things that we enjoy here on Sunday morning happening if giving hasn't occurred. And so giving is necessary for our survival, but not just our survival in terms of, of supplying the, the monetary uh, means for doing the things we do, but our survival in terms of our heart, our perspective, our priorities. If you want to know what a person truly values, ask where they spend their money. There's two ways to determine a person's true values. Ask who their heroes are and ask where their money goes. Those two realities, more than any other thing, will reveal, will reflect, will communicate what is truly important to you. And so our survival is not just dependent upon giving so that we can keep our doors open. Our survival is dependent upon giving because it helps us keep our heart, our mind, our focus in the right place. It helps us to, to reprioritize. It helps us to redirect. It helps us to understand the things that really matter. When you have to make a decision, when you have to make a choice, what you're going to give, where you're going to spend your money, or where you're going to invest it, so to speak. That invites you to, to go to God. That invites you to listen to God. That invites you to see God's work in the world around us. And so Paul advocates here a response to this need that was experienced in Jerusalem. And, and his introductory phrase there, now about, that tells us he's answering the question. That's the last of his questions. Somebody in a letter, somebody in a response has said, what are we supposed to do with this church in Jerusalem and this money you want? How's that work? Why are you asking for our money again? And he's about. he tells them, I'm asking for your money. Because it's about our survival. It's about our existence as a church. It's about our support and love for our brothers and sisters. 
Then in verses 5 and following, Paul goes in to, to talk about his travel plans, where he's going to spend the, the next several months, what he hopes to accomplish and, and what he's doing. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, because he is doing the Lord's work, just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he can come to me, because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come right now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. As Paul talks about his travel plans, as, as Paul focuses in on, on some of the things that he expects and, and the arrival of Timothy and, and the, the hopeful journey of Apollos to of the church there at Corinth, he highlights to us that discipleship is at the heart of what it takes to And this is an emphasis that we see in the Bible that has largely um, been lost or relegated to second-tier status in the church today. We hear a lot about evangelism. We hear a lot about revival. We hear a lot about winning souls. But if you move through the New Testament, you don't hear those terms. You don't hear those expressions. You don't see that emphasis played out. For the church, the emphasis is discipleship. The emphasis is seeing someone go from lostness to sharing their faith, living out their life, committing their walk. We, we've come from a mindset now, we, 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 we've developed this mindset to where there's evangelism over here and discipleship over here, that they're two very different things. That's not a biblical perspective. The idea that someone can, quote, be one for the Lord and then abandon to their own ways and their own works and their own walk and their own learning and so forth is foreign to the biblical model. We need to be investing in people. We need to be working with people. We need to take time with people. Paul here says what? He says, I don't want to come and just pass through. I don't want to come and just preach a couple sermons to you and then be on my way. I, I'm not a traveling evangelist, so to speak, I'm what? I'm a disciple maker. I want to spend some time with you. I want to preach to you. I want to teach you. I want to instruct you. I want to be an example for you. I want to, to play these things out before you so that you grow, so that you learn, so that you understand. We looked uh, at last week at the, at the, the nature of, of the, the human existence. And that if the resurrection is, in fact, a part of who we are, if the resurrection is what we expect, that this body will one day be resurrected, then what? We minister to the whole body. We talked about that. As Paul emphasized that. My, my great fear is that our church is failing 
And our, when I say our church, I'm not talking about this local body. I'm talking about our church as a whole. The church universal is failing because we bought into this idea of we just need to get that person to pray that prayer. We just need to get that person to make that decision. We just need to get that person down the aisle. And we see people make those decisions. We see people pray those prayers. We see people make those commitments, so to speak, and then walk out the door and never again give Christ, the church, his work, their life a second thought. Why? They got their fire insurance. And I have to wonder if they, in fact, do. I can't question or challenge or judge anybody's individual heart, but I can say that there's going to be an awful lot of people on the day of judgment who stand before the Lord. And if he asks, why should I let you into my kingdom? They're going to say, because I prayed a prayer once before once upon a time, and he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. And some of that is on our shoulders because we told them that's the case. You prayed the prayer, you're good to go. When instead, scriptures would have us disciple them. Jesus' command wasn't go and make wind go and win souls. Jesus' command was go and make disciples. Go and make authentic followers. Go and build people's faith in me. Go and build people's understanding of the word. Go and, and, and help them to, to identify and understand their place and their role. Now that's the harder work. That requires focus, that requires commitment, that requires patience. Paul, as he reflects here, how many, how many journeys did he take through this area? We know of at least three. Why did he keep coming back? Why didn't he head off to new lands and new places? Because he was building disciples. And when we, I'm convinced that when we get serious about actually building disciples, we will see the church grow. We will see the church become an effective instrument for God's purposes here in the world again. You read the polls, you, 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 you see, the, you see the, the surveys that are out there. Every time one of those surveys comes out, my heart just breaks because it says, you know, 60% of evangelicals believe that abortion's okay. 60% of evangelicals believe that, that there's another way to salvation other than Jesus. These majority numbers and all these just constantly coming out, undermining, questioning, minimizing basic truths of Christianity. Why? Because we've told people a lie that just going to church or, or just praying the prayer is enough. We're saved by grace. It's God's work, not ours. Let me be clear about that. I, I don't want anybody leaving here this morning thinking I'm advocating for work salvation in any way, shape, or form. I'm not. It's God's grace that transforms us. 
It's God's grace that saves us, delivers us, helps us to grow. But the scriptures are very clear that if that grace is present, if that work is taking place, then our lives will exhibit that through learning and growing and understanding who we are in him. Applying the truth to our lives. Walking with truth and love. I long for the day when we can say, along with Paul, what he says there in verse 9, a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. What's he saying there? He's saying opportunities are endless. There's so much for me to do, I can't even do it all. Wouldn't that be a great problem to have as a church? There's so many opportunities for ministry. There's so many people needing to learn and to grow and to understand Christ and his work. It's, it's more than I can handle. What a problem to have. I long for that. To need, uh, to lean on our partners in ministry, as Paul does here. Why is he sending Timothy? Why is he concerned about Apollos? Because Paul can't do it all. There's so much to need to get our hearts and minds wrapped around this idea, this concept of discipleship. Because we are at war. It's not a battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. If it bleeds, it's not your enemy. But we are at war nonetheless. And that's why Paul tells us, encourages us in the last part of his letter here to recognize that our fellowship with one another helps us fight the fight that we have. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. He tells us right there, it's a battle. He uses four military metaphors, four military commands that were common to their day that, that officers would share with their with their shoulders, with their soldiers to make sure that they understood all that they needed to do. Be on alert. Keep your eyes open. What? What does Peter say? He says, Satan is a like a roaring lion, seeking whom he shall devour. Be sober-minded, therefore. Be, be alert about it. Understand. We are at war. This is not a game. And yet so easily, so often, we slip into just coasting through life. And we see people that God has laid on our hearts to to share our faith with, to communicate his goodness, to, to, to share the gospel with, and we go on and ignore them because it's inconvenient to take the time to share or we're afraid of what they might say. We've got to be alert. We've got to what? We've got to stand firm in the faith. Don't waver. 
Get that shield up. Get those legs set. Be ready when the onslaught comes because when you start sharing your faith, when you start living for Christ, you're going to get attacked. You're going to be spiritually attacked like nothing you've ever experienced. You know the reason most of us are not under attack? The reason I'm not under attack the way I should be? Satan doesn't see me as a threat. He doesn't see you as a threat. Why would he cause you difficulties that might wake you up and make you see just how powerful and awesome and amazing God is when it's just easier to let you kind of coast the way you are right now? You don't have to worry about it. You have that old saying, be the kind of Christian that when you wake up in the morning, Satan says, oh, dang, they're up again. Be courageous. Yeah, there's some scary parts of being, about being a Christian, about living for Christ. But perfect love casts out fear. Be courageous. Be strong. Work on it. Grow those spiritual muscles. Spend time in God's word. Fellowship with one another. We are at war, but it is a war. It is a battle that's fought differently. Verse 14, do everything in love. I think there's a lot of people who have, who have accepted the idea that there is a culture war out there or, or who, are, who are in the midst of a culture war battle but they've forgotten that as Christians, we don't fight that battle the same way the world does. We don't manipulate. We don't, we don't lie. We don't, we don't bend things to our own purposes. We do what? We do everything in love. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Remember all those things we went through there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? That it never ends. Finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the type of battle we fight. And it might cost us, or it might mean the risk of looking, quote, weak. But our strength is not in our authority or in our power or in our might. Our strength is in the Lord. And this is a battle, this is a fight that persists until Christ returns. As Paul wraps up in verse 21, following, he says, This greeting's in my own hand, Paul. In other words, I've, I've taken the pen from my amanuensis, from my secretary. Paul, Almost all of Paul's letters were apparently written by somebody else standing there as he dictated to them what to write. But every once in a while, he grabs that pen back from there and says, I'm going to write this part myself. And he tells us right here he's doing that. This greeting now is in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse is on him. If you don't love the Lord, you're lost. But then he utters those three words, our Lord. 
grace of Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Christ is coming back. He's returning. And I know it's been over 2,000 years. And people are looking and, and people are saying, I can't believe someone would still believe Jesus is coming back 2,000 years later. You know what? According to the book of Peter, people were saying that 30 years later. I can't believe people are still believing Jesus is coming back. It's not the amount of time that matters. It's the person who made the promise. And his word is good. His word is authentic. His word is something you can build your life around. And Christ is coming back. And if he is coming back and he is going to return in power and his majesty, don't we want to be a people who are living in a way, who are expressing in a way that we're not ashamed in that moment of his return. But we can stand and we can proclaim and we can live in a manner that says, see, I told you, without saying, see, I told you. Says it with love, with humility, not with arrogance or pride. Are you living a life that says, see, I told you? That says, Jesus is Lord. That says, Jesus is directing my heart, my mind, my purposes. That's seeking to make a difference by making disciples. That's giving out of thankfulness, out of appreciation for what God has given you. That's making a difference, not because of who you are, but because of who lives in you and who lives and works through you. God is calling us to wake up. God is calling us to put our ministry and our knowledge and our faith into action. Time is short. Are we responsive? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here. God, I thank you for your word, for the hope that it communicates, the, the grace, the peace, the love that you've revealed to us through your son, through your work in our hearts and minds. God, I pray firstly that if there's anyone here right now that does not have a relationship with It's not walking in a way that doesn't understand what it means to, to be transformed by your power, by your mercy, by your grace. God, I, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and draw them that they would respond in faith. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, myself, that you would help us to, to wake up 
to realize, to recognize that we are, in fact, at war. And that it's a war that we fight with love. It's a war that we fight with truth. It's a war that we fight under your power, by your spirit. And help us to leave here this morning with a renewed commitment to, to pursue that battle. God, if there are other decisions that need to be made here, surrendering to the ministry, uniting with our church, finding connection with your work in, in some other way, some other calling, some challenge that you've placed on our lives, Lord, we pray that you would, you would guide us and help us to do just that. In Christ's name we pray.